Good evening, everybody. Well, the official inflation figure was out this morning. It's the highest in 40 years. No great surprise there. It's running at 9.1%. But we also hear today that one of the government's big plans over the next year is to increase benefits and pensions in line with inflation, perhaps even double-digit rises. Now, when you think about it, those in work are being offered 2%, 3%, maybe 4%. So if you're in work, you are relatively falling behind. And one thing I'm struck by, and I'm going to start debating tonight, but really examine over the course of the next few months and weeks, is if you're a young couple with a couple of kids, perhaps an elderly parent living with you, if you can get in excess of £25,000 a year in benefits, and that's tax-free money, what on earth is the point of going out to work? We've heard many times before about the trap that you're on benefits, you want to go to work, but the tax system makes it very, very difficult. But I'm beginning to think that situation's about to get worse. And I say that because we keep hearing about labour shortages, and yet immigration figures are the highest they've ever been. There are 5.3 million adults of working age in this country not working. A very large number on disability benefits. Quite a large number who appear post-pandemic to just not want to go back to work. But perhaps there's no real incentive if you're on benefits to do so. So please, you tell me, are people better off on benefits than going out to work and being on low pay? Give me your thoughts. Farage at gbnews.uk. Well, Jonathan Porters joins me, Professor of Economics at King's College London. Do you see the point I'm making, Jonathan, that, that if benefits are as rumoured, and of course, you know, this is a government facing an election at some point. But, but if, if benefits do go up in line with inflation, but wages are rising at a paltry 2 or 3%, there are millions of people out there who aren't much better off. Well, wait a minute. Benefits were ra uh, raised by 3%. They were, yes. In April. The minimum wage was raised by more than 6% in April. Mm -hmm. So that increased the differential between the level of benefits and the minimum wage. At the same time, wages overall have been way. going up by 4 or 5%. Wages for people in the finance sector mm -hmm. um, have been going up by a lot more. But uh, I'm, to yeah, but I'm so talking here about the right, lower paid. Well, um, so, actually, so, so the lower paid are not doing that badly in that sense. Minimum wages have gone up by more than benefits mm -hmm. this year. What happened, We can come to what happens next year. This is yeah. next April we're talking about yeah. for benefits and pensions yeah. going up. But at the moment, wages are rising faster than benefits. People on benefits are falling further behind. So it seems very odd to suggest that any of the labour shortages we're experiencing now can possibly okay. be to do with I, the benefits. I, I, I'm thing, just right? talking about the message that's been put out by the government well, overnight. Um, I, I, I'm also kind of hinting that when you get a government that proposes that those that work pay taxes, for those that get housing benefit to get mortgages, I mean, people start to well, say, well, what's the point of working? Um, well, uh, you know, the employment rate up in, just before the pandemic, the employment rate in this country was its highest level in recorded economic history, right? Mm -hmm. Most people in the UK who can work want to work. We do have a very long standing people with a lot of people on disability benefits. That goes back to the Thatcher recession of the, uh, uh, of the early 1980s and the loss and major recession of the 90s, both of which pushed a lot of people out of work who drifted onto disability benefits in some respects. Um, are we seeing that again with the COVID pandemic? That the COVID pandemic 
forced people out of work, some of them have moved on disability benefits, perhaps some of them got long COVID and are now disabled. Um, that is definitely a worry, and that is something that the government yeah, should be worried about. I mean, I mean I, you know, the figures that I've looked at suggest mm. that there are three times the number of people on disability benefits today that there were in 1981. That's correct. Broadly, it doesn't yes. make sense, does it? It doesn't work. Um, it's not possible, is it? Uh, I think part of that is that um, part of that is definitely the uh, the 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 after impact of the recessions of the 80s and 90s when we did but that absolutely but, government but, but, did but, let but, people look. You can blame the Tories, Jonathan. Yeah. All you like, well, all right. Uh, but what know, I'm saying is this: the Tories, is, yeah. is it okay? Fine. But but it is, is it right that so many people are on disability benefit? Um, I certainly think that. Uh, governments of all parties, and not just the Tories, mm. haven't done nearly enough to help people, disabled people back into work. We're a lot better at recognising mental health conditions than we were 30 years ago, and that has quite a lot to do with it. A lot of people on disability benefits now have moderate mental health conditions of some, po some form. Um, and it is very difficult to get people uh, um, in that condition back to work. Um, what's the answer? We don't know. It is a mixture of help, support, pressure sometimes, getting the benefit system right. We do know that in the beginning of the 2010s, the Tories, when the Tories came in, they said, oh, a lot of these people are scroungers, we're going to have new tests, that's going to get them back to work. Mm. That was a complete and utter failure. A lot of people's lives were made a lot more miserable. Some people died. We know people died of starvation, quite literally, in this country because their benefits were taken away. Um, well, there that, are there are that, food banks and other ways to no, back people but, up, but, yeah, uh, you, but you know, no, but, people, but, people. But we know there are cases already, so you have to be quite careful about this. Um, so I don't think that you know the, the taking people's benefits away. We know that does not work. It doesn't. It's not politically. So viable. we have to incentivize. We have work. to incentivize. And my people. point is, that and I agree on that. Some yes. of those striking railway men and women, yeah. who are on thirty-two thousand a year, yeah. right? Let's say they've got. You know, a wife, a couple of young kids yeah. at home. They've got an elderly yeah. relative living with them. Yeah. They're living in London. Yeah. They'd be better off not working. I don't think so. And, you know... Well, there's not much in it. Well, do you think that... I mean, I, I don't hear the striking railwaymen saying, oh, well, actually, we might as well uh, go and live on benefits. They're saying we want, well, we I, want our wages r well, risen by something that's at jo least... Jonathan, we're going to come back to this because I've got to explain to myself why mm. there are 5.3 million people of working age that aren't working and most of them are living on benefits of some kind. And it's a subject I'm going to return to again and again and I shall call mm. once again on your expertise. Thank, Thank you, you very much indeed. Thank you. Now, some of you may remember Benefit Street, that very popular TV show. And there was one shining star that came out of the programme of that street. Yes, it's Deirdre D. Kelly, White D. And she joins me now. Good evening, Nigel. Good evening. Very good to see you. Now, you were very much the absolute star of that programme. And... What I'm talking about here is worsening economic circumstances, uh, the prospect of benefits going up next year quite a lot. Uh, I mean, do you feel that there's a mindset out there among people who are on low pay that they might just as well be on benefits? 
I wouldn't say there's a mindset out there, um, but there is a serious, serious problem out there. Um, and again, this kind of like draws the line, doesn't it? It's kind of, you know, the majority of people who are on benefits, we've just come through a global pandemic. There are more people on benefits now that have ever been on them. Um, and people trying to get back into work but again it's kind of like the it's it's to do with everything that you've mentioned the cost of living the you know the inflation rise it's making it extremely difficult for people to survive whether they're working or not yeah and and Dee, just just a thought on this on, on on the psychology of this from what you've seen and with your experience are people happier being at work when they are on benefits? Um, I don't think, it, in, in this current climate, climate, I wouldn't say they're happier at the moment because, again, people that are working are working 40-plus hours week, hour a week and they've actually got nothing to show, Nigel. They've, they can't live. Do you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, obviously, you know, the youth organisation that I co-run at the moment, we've been been providing food parcels for needy families for over two years and we've actually saw a massive increase in the demand for for families who are actually in employment and that seems to be the sad state of affairs at the yeah. moment yeah yeah as you say people in work and still going to food banks people in work who i suspect might be better off in some cases on benefits Dee, it's fabulous to have you on the show. I'm going to get you back again, hopefully in the studio here, and we'll talk about this whole question in the not-too-distant future. Definitely. Thank you for Definitely. joining me this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Now, the ECHR, this programme has, of course, been railing about the ECHR, and I was the least surprised person in the country when an anonymous judge at five past ten the other day grounded that flight. But it's OK. Dominic Raab is coming to the rescue. Dominic Raab, the man who always looks to me rather like a rabbit, stuck in the headlights of a car and rather frightened of himself, but he was up today in the House of Commons introducing his British Bill of Rights. Let's have a look. Mr Speaker, next we will strengthen the separation of powers in this country, affirming the supremacy of the Supreme Court, being explicit that the UK courts are under no obligation to follow the Strasbourg case law and indeed are free to diverge from it. I am proud of our world-beating judiciary. And what else is the point? What else is the point of a Supreme Court if it bows in subordination to a European one? So it's all going to be fine. Absolutely fine. There's no problem. No problem at all. No, you can believe every word. Dominic Raab tells you his new bill means we can just ignore judgments of the European Court of Human Rights. Well, got to tell you something. I spent 20 years across there in Strasbourg and Brussels. And what I know is our membership of these organisations is through an international treaty. We are honour bound. And if we think we can stay part of the ECHR, but just break the rules when it suits us. Well, it's a very un-British approach to things, in my view. Why not just leave the blooming thing? That's my view. I'm totally unconvinced, just as unconvinced as I was that Rwanda would work all the way, all the while we stayed part of this thing. And you can think that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I've been right thus far. Well, Jed Odomat is lecturer in law at the University of London. Um, Jed... These were very big claims today. 
by Dominic Raab in the Commons, that somehow this was reclamation of our sovereignty in every way. How do you read it? Now, of course, I would disagree with you on whether or not we should be leaving the ECHR, but I do agree with the assessment course. you have. Why, of course? I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, I just... would, would the whole of academia <laughs> always disagree with me? Well, I am in favour of us being part of the European Convention of Human Rights. Fine. I think that's uh, maybe a debate we can have um, on another day. We're not talking about this bill. Fine. Um, but I do agree with you on your assessment about the fact that this will not allow the UK government to be able to simply ignore decisions of the, uh, of the ECHR. Um, what it means is that really judges will have less discretion in the way they interpret and apply the ECHR in the UK system. So even though there's a lot of debate and talk about how this will change the uh, balance between Strasbourg and the UK, what it really means is really with uh, narrowing what the judges in the UK can do when it comes to yes. interpreting and applying Article the ECHR. Article 8, this right to a family life, which perhaps is the one that's been the most contentious over the years. And I think what Rob is saying, that the bar must be set higher for what constitutes right to a family life in terms of who your dependents are, etc. Yeah, so that's one of the things that the bill intends to do. It tries to rebalance rights in this way. And there are a few types of rights that are emphasised by the government in the bill. And Article 8 is one of them. Also, uh, freedom of speech is also given quite a bit of a emphasis. And also the kinds of rights that the government doesn't like, for instance, so-called positive obligations. Um, but definitely Article 8 is one of the uh, areas that is trying to be examined in more detail. And I think the problem with this is really, well, as human rights lawyers, we try and apply human rights in a way that they're all kind of equal I mean, rather than having I mean, a... You're a whole uh, industry, you guys, aren't you? You're a whole industry. Tony Blair's the best thing that ever happened to you. Well, there are things that could change uh, for the ECHR system to make it better, but also uh, for the implementation. But I don't think that this addresses any of those issues uh, for the implementation. It wouldn't really improve the rights of victims to be able to make claims, successful claims, in the British system. Um, and there's also been criticism that the bill, as drafted, isn't very workable, that uh, it's not drafted in a clear way that will actually be workable for judges who have to actually apply the, the bill if it comes to So let's just say, let's yeah. just say, I mean, this government still has a big majority. Let's just say they rattle this bill through Parliament. Does that mean then they'll be sending planes to Rwanda? Given the same set of circumstances after this becomes legislation, what this um, bill would mean is that, say, these interim measures, what you were talking about with Rwanda last week, wouldn't be applicable in the UK anymore, um, or for UK judges. And so this would mean that a UK judge could decide to not apply that interim measure, which, as you mentioned in your introduction, would lead to the situation where the UK would still be under an international obligation to implement that interim measure, but would be not doing it... Through in a treaty that we'd agreed to, and there'd be uproar. Yeah. And the UK has, when it has presidency of the Council of Europe, sought to uh, reform the ECHR to change that system. But what this bill would do is really uh, minimise the discretion of UK judges when interpreting and applying. So I'm not sure if it would actually address what you see as a problem, which is yeah. what happened uh, with the deportation to Rwanda. Well, Jed Enema, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here in the studio, even though we are very much from different camps on this. But I think we both agree that Dominic Raab today.
in Parliament is trying to sell us a pup. It simply will not work now. It's Glastonbury this week. People are gathering down at Glastonbury. I'm going to be joined in a moment by Fumes the Engineer because the Director of Public Prosecutions today has been talking about drill music. I'm going to ask Fumes, how bad is this stuff or shouldn't we be worried at all? Welcome back. Well, I asked the question earlier, if you're on low pay, could you actually be better off simply being on benefits? Well, your responses to that one viewer says it is starting to feel like it's a waste of time going to work. May as well sign on and stay at home. John says, of course, people should still work. It isn't for everyone else to pay for people's lives. Mary says, an absolute waste of time now. Inflation and benefit increases means it's pointless. And when you hear these negative comments, about people going out to work. I think this is really bad for society. We're going to have to find a way, going to have to find a way for people on benefits to go to work and to actually be a fair bit better off. Now, it is Glastonbury this week, another one of those things that was all stopped for lockdown, but it's happening this week and the crowds are gathering today and it looks like it won't rain until at least Saturday, which is probably quite a good thing for the people heading there. Quite how they're going to get there with train strikes tomorrow, I've no idea. But I've got a guest with me tonight who's going to be there at Glastonbury as one of the star turns. It's Fumes the Engineer. Before I introduce him, let's see him in action. Welcome to the show. Good to see you. Thanks for having me, man. Are you excited about Glastonbury? Yeah, yeah, it's a big it's a big day for me, man. It's my first, it's my biggest booking, do you know what I mean? So it's like it's big Glastonbury, Glastonfest, do you know what I mean? So yeah, very exciting stuff. How are you gonna get there? Not by train? Nah, obviously, I think there's gonna be maybe a couple cars. Might have to be a bus. We're still kind of sorting it out because we're not sure what day we're actually going because we got a show the night before as well. So we don't know if we're, whether we're going to drive straight up there and then just stay throughout the day or just go go up there. Couple up, like they said, they wanted to get there like five six hours early. So we'll figure it out, but we'll be there. Now the music, the music. I want to talk to you about the music. Yeah. All right, you know, drill music in particular, which has become very, very contentious, very controversial, very popular, uh -huh. very controversial with some. We've now got you know, the Director of Public Prosecutions in this country saying that the lyrics that are used in drill music shouldn't be used to smear defendants, but some of the video clips, if they show associations of different people, could be used in a courtroom. That's... and it's kind of confusing, but yeah. let's just get into this with you. I mean, let's be honest. Some of the lyrics, mm -hmm. some of the words in drill music are pretty horrific, aren't they? It depends what, what how you're looking at it. Like some of the words in like action movies are pretty horrific too, but it's not real life. You say that, but I mean, you know, I, I look at some of these lyrics about you know the use of blades and knives, and we kind of know that in London and many of our cities we've got increasing knife crime and all the rest of it. And and you know, you know, I put Rambo blades in chests. Take that risk by CB. It's not good, is it? I mean, does drill music need to clean itself up? It's really my question to you. 
problem with music, do you know what music's like? An expression of freedom of speech, like, it's, it's creativity, it's an opportunity for the younger generation to kind of make something of themselves. So when they're in the studio, when they're doing music videos and that, they're not doing whatever it is that other people will stereotype them for doing. Do you see what I'm saying? So it takes them away from potentially any kind of street activity, any kind of violence, X, Y, and Z, if that's what their life consumes of. But a lot of this is like, it's visual storytelling. So you're saying it's not real life? No. So this stuff, yeah. oh, by the way, you know, I know there's only a fraction of the words that are used are like this, and I get that. I'm not trying to put the whole mm. genre in a bad light. I'm just saying, wouldn't it be better for drill music as a whole to get rid of some of this stuff? What makes you say that, though? Well, you know, in a, we're living in a society where what we say mm. and whether we cause offence to each other has become a much more sensitive issue than it's ever been before. You know, okay. I'm going to talk later on about a comedian. You know, okay. tells a joke and gets reported to the police, and it wasn't that bad a joke, really. And I'm just saying to you that I think some of this language is... is it's almost encouraging violence. It's not, though. It's not always encouraging violence. Sometimes they're actually talking about making money and buying their mum a car and yeah, yeah. moving no, no, out no, of the that. areas. I get that. I get so that. we need to not focus on right. what, what it is that you guys want to focus on, because it's, like it's like Joe is creative storytelling, and all they're doing is trying to use their talents to tell a story. It doesn't mean that they are the story. It doesn't mean that that's their everyday life. Do you see what I'm saying? No, because... no, I get what you're saying. I understand a lot of it is about aspiration, a lot yeah. of it is about ambition, and I get all of that. As it turns out, it looks like the courts are going to agree with you, and the courts are going to say that these words can't be used in cases. I just wonder... As they should. I, I, I just wonder, don't you sometimes think that goes a bit far? Sometimes I think GTA goes a bit far. I think action movies goes a bit far. We've got Fast and Furious. People are driving around. They still get speeding tickets. It's, it's offensive. It's offences. It's crimes as well. Do you get what I mean? But I'll be, I'll be looking into that, though. All right, fine. Well, listen, have a great Glastonbury. <laughs> My Thanks God. for coming on. And I know some of you at home won't know much about drill music. Uh, and I, I'm not here to demonise it. I just think some of the words, perhaps sometimes, if they weren't there, it might be a little bit better. That's just my feeling on it. Thank you very much indeed, Fumes. Anytime. For joining me this evening. <laughs> right, let's go on to a, a subject that is a little bit grimmer, I think, than that. And it's Rotherham. Now, we remember going back just a few years ago, I'm talking 2014, the Rotherham abuse scandal hit the front pages of our newspapers and caused the most incredible shock. The biggest shock, I think, wasn't just what was happening to those young girls, it was that the police appeared quite willfully to turn a blind eye. Well, here we are, all this time on, and there is a report that is out today, and I wonder whether all these years on, there's going to be some accountability for what happened, what went wrong, and that collective turning of a blind eye. Well, David Greenwood is a solicitor representing 80 of the Rotherham victims and survivors, and he joins me down the line now. Good evening. Welcome to the programme. What does this IOC report tell us, please? Well, it lays out bare all the uh, failings of South Yorkshire Police. Um, it, during the period 1997 to 2013. 40-odd, um, um, most of my clients, most of them my clients spoke to the IOPC and gave long video interviews 
detailing their contacts with the police during the time that they were in sexual exploitation, um, detailing, for instance, being sat in cars with groups of Asian men who were much older than them and that the police didn't take any action on those types of things and being found in premises um, and not being taken home or to a place of safety uh, when they were in premises along with uh, a number of um, Asian men. So it lays all that bare. Um, it lays bare uh, the failings of the police to have any kind of professional curiosity about these offences also for such a long period of time. It lays bare the, the system uh, that the South Yorkshire Police operated, which was to essentially discriminate against these these girls um, and to not really take their, any kind of offences seriously. Um, it shows how the, the systems at South Yorkshire Police were geared more towards acquisitive crimes, burglary and theft, rather than looking out for this, what is now really uh, a segment of a generation of women in in Rotherham who have been affected by this. So that's one thing that it um, that it does. It tells us the facts, um, but it also tells us that very very few officers were uh, able to be disciplined, um, and none of them lost their jobs. There has been zero accountability. <laughs> David, this is extraordinary, and I say that because when this Rotherham story first broke, I think a lot of people found it difficult to believe. And I've been asked about Rotherham, not just in this country, but in America, Australia, and all around the world. So shocked were people at the scale of what went on in a not particularly big town in Yorkshire. And just to get back to that point you made, not a single police officer has lost their job. Absolutely. And what message does it send? It sends the message to women who, were, who could be thinking of coming forward and telling their tale that you know, they won't get any accountability as far as the police are concerned. And it also sends the, the wrong message to police officers. It, it sends the message that you can do your job really badly and get away with it and yeah. keep your job. Well, you know, David, I'm not a police basher, far from it. I try and be as supportive of the police in most cases as I possibly can. They've got a hell of a tough job to do. But in this case, it was one of abject cowardice, abject cowardice for fear of being called racist and total failure. Um, and final thought, perhaps, please, from you. Um, are we confident that these kind of activities are not taking place in Rotherham today? Definitely not. No, they are taking place in Rotherham today, and they're taking place in towns and cities up and down the country. They're taking place in villages in our country. Uh, so, uh, well, the National Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse did a study of 12 um, local authorities and police forces and their responses in recent years to CSE, this type of street grooming, and they found good and bad, mainly bad practice, um, and some good. Um, and, you know, for all the systems that are in place now, it really comes, boils down to whether there is good leadership in the council and the police, uh, whether they are really serious about pouring, pouring money and resources into these things. And what yeah. the, the biggest thing for me is that the response times, when these offences are, are um, reported, response times are way too slow. 
once once they're reported, the girls are already in it. They need hit squads to get in there and do something about it quickly, not in two or three weeks or two or three months' time. We really need to no, focus on this. No. I, I think there's overwhelming support for that point of view. And, David Green, I want to say well done for what you do um, in standing up and fighting and representing the rights of 80 of those young girls that were abused in that most truly shocking and horrendous way. Thank you for joining me here on GB News. Now, I talked about free speech a moment ago with Fumes. Uh, I, I made the point that these days almost anybody can get in trouble over free speech. Probably this is harder for comedians, for stand-up comedians, than it is for anybody else. And we hear examples of many of them effectively being cancelled, theatre bookings being stopped and all the rest of it. But Joe Lycett is not one of those that we would expect. Joe Lycett, of course, Channel 4, BBC Two, a whole host of TV programmes that he's done over the years. Very, very well-known fella. Loves going out and doing his stand-up routine. Well... One of the jokes that he told caused offence to somebody in the audience. How awful. Can you imagine being offended by something someone said? You paid 35 quid to go and hear them and they tell a joke and you're offended. And so that member of the audience reported Joe Lycett to the police. And the police, who could, of course, be working on cases such as the Rotherham situation that we just discussed, no, they had to put time and effort into the joke that Joe Lycett had told. And in an Instagram post, Lycett wrote, to be fair to them, the files were very nice about it, but they felt they had the duty to investigate. And, of course, it was dropped. There are no charges. But what's happened? We've just wasted the police's time and money. And I have to say, I just think the whole thing is absolutely ridiculous. The matter is now closed. But, you know... If you're worried about a joke Joe Lycett might tell, don't buy a ticket. If you don't like the jokes that Joe Lycett tells, then don't go back and buy another ticket. Let's leave the police out of this. It is nonsensical. It is ridiculous. I do wonder whether much of what's going wrong is really being bred through our schools and universities. I don't think we're teaching youngsters genuine critical thinking, that there are different points of view and they have equal virtue and merit. No, we're sort of, I think, indoctrinating kids to think one way and to think anyone that thinks differently is somehow causing you an offence, that you need your safe space. I think education is perhaps the part of our country that needs more reform than absolutely anything else. Well, in a moment, on Talking Pints, Chris McGovern of the Campaign for Real Education will join me and we'll discuss that very subject. It's time for Talking Pints. We're here at the GB News Tavern by Thames, and I'm joined by Chris McGovern of the Campaign for Real Education. Cheers. Good evening. Now, there are some that would say, the Campaign for Real Education, it all sounds a bit What's wrong with you? Shouldn't we be more progressive in our attitudes and our thinking? Yeah, some, some snappy thinkers say, well, the campaign for real education is a bit like the campaign for real ale, but more fun, you know. 
Uh, I like the campaign for real. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're like you're like the uh, the campaign for real education because we came into existence in Yorkshire about forty years ago, basically to save grammar schools and also to save the grammar school exam. And we need the campaign for real education more than ever because we're the only voice at the moment saying, look, actually we've lost something. And yeah, you, you know, sometimes people say to me, Chris McGovern, you're living in a in a past age. Yeah, yeah. But when I go to Singapore or Shanghai or South Korea, they say I'm at the, I'm at the cutting edge. Because the methods I'm suggesting, which we ditched in the 1960s, well, they're not being ditched in, in, in Singapore. And interestingly enough, the old grammar school exam, the O-level, um, is still the exam they sit in Singapore. And we ban it in our own country. We make it here. It was 11 plus to begin with, wasn't it? That's to right. To get in. And the argument against, which I remember very well, mm. is it's unfair at 11 to separate kids. That was the argument. I actually failed the 11 plus, went to secondary modern school, passed at 13, so you could pass later on. And by the way, it's nowhere near as unfair as the current system where you buy a house in the catchment area of a good school. So yeah. now we, ha we have selection by postcode. Yeah, uh, yeah there, there are, it's not a perfect system. And other countries around the world have grammar schools and, and they have a selection system of sorts, but they do it without actually taking an exam because they have very good technical schools. They have vocational schools. Probably in our country. Vocational? What does that word mean? Yeah, indeed. What does it mean? The the problem in this country was so snobbish. We've got a lack of engineers, yeah. we've got a lack of people in the medical profession, a lack of people, I mean, the STEM mm. subjects. Mm. We have to import labour from all over the world. Mm. What is it about us mm. that says to 16-year-olds, mm. says to 18-year-olds, you know, we'd love you to get an ology, mm. but for goodness sake, don't become an engineer. For goodness sake, mm. don't, go, don't go and learn a trade or a skill. Because the funny thing is, all the people in trades and skills mm right now and through the pandemic are earning much more money than those working in the so-called Is it Absolutely. some sort of snobbery about this country? A lot, a lot of snobbery, I think, Nigel. What's happening is that we, traditionally in this country, we've regarded academic as being superior. Somehow Dickens is superior to Charles Kingdom, uh, to, to, to Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Engineering, plumbing, uh, all a bit grubby, all a bit grubby. All a bit grubby, but of course earning a lot of money. And what we're doing at the moment, thanks to Tony Blair, we're sending large numbers of youngsters to university, 50% yeah. now. Yeah. And they're underemployed. When I spoke to a, com a national conference of, of admissions tutors at university a few years ago, I told them the truth. I said, you understand that a lot of your, half of your youngsters are, are now working in jobs which they're not, they're, they're graduates, but they're not doing jobs commensurate with that degree. They're underemployed. And there was a hushed silence in the room. And it was witnessed by the, by the press. After that, after that talk, yeah. three universities, uh, admissions students came to me and they said, Chris, thank God you said it because no one else will tell the truth. And that's what's going on. Kids are going to university doing useless degrees and they're underemployed afterwards. We yeah. need to get youngsters into vocational schools from an earlier age. I mean, we have grammar schools and they're doing a great job. Not many of them, about 200 or so across Britain and Northern Which Ireland. Is nothing. Nothing, no. We need lots more grammar schools, particularly in poorer areas, but we need horses for courses. We've got to get away from the idea that somehow grammar schools are better. No, we want good technicals. Switzerland, Germany, China, Korea, they have these schools. And in Germany, of course, you know, if your 16 or 18-year-old says they want to go and learn a trade or learn a skill, you're overjoyed. So, yeah, there's something wrong with our thinking on this. You, you were a head, headmaster. Yeah. We talk a lot about universities on GB News, mm. um, particularly about you know, the banning of speakers, the safe spaces, the, the incident at Durham University mm. that happened with Rod Little. And mm. we do debate that a lot here on GB News because yeah. we believe in free speech as a channel, genuinely. Mm. It's part of our DNA. I worry that actually,
a form of indoctrination of kids is taking place way before that, that it's actually happening from primary school onwards. You see, I was brought up, mm. I was well-educated, mm. didn't mean I didn't, I didn't do anything like as well as I should have done, but I was brought up, I was brought up with critical thinking. Yeah. I was brought up with, look, here's a particular issue or a problem, there were two very clearly defined approaches to it, they both have equal moral value and virtue, and you make your mind up which of those you believe in. And I feel now from an early age we're teaching kids that you know, this alternative is upstanding, is moral, is correct, is unchallengeable, and those that believe in the other view you know, are virtually neo-Nazis. That's true. I mean, even from primary school, five-year-olds are being taught uh, about gender identity, for example, and asked to question this. Children who deserve a childhood, who can see evil through fairy tales, for example, if they want to get familiar with the nastiness of the world. But from an early age, five or six, they're being taught critical race theory, gender identity theory, and they're getting confused and they're becoming quite unhappy. Because what we do know from a number of investigations is that youngsters in British schools are some of the unhappiest in the world. I mean, a lot of mental health problems. They are being brainwashed. We're entering a, a new dark age of education. You know, the lights have been switched off in our education system. And if you want to know what our governments have done, not just the present government, last 50, 60 years, what's their monument? Look around you. Look at the state of education today. That's what they have achieved. And it's a mess. And we're running about three years behind in standards, the best education systems in the world. It's, 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 it's a but surely, it's a Chris McGovern, you must be wrong because... Every August, we get the GCSE week and the A-level week, and grades are getting better every year. Yeah, it's incredible. We close the schools down, and the, and the grades go through the roof. And, and, the, gov and the government's chief... <laughs> the, the, gov the government's chief uh, standards commissioner at what's called Ofqual said a few years ago to the Sunday Times, and I quote... All our kids are brilliant, and that's the lie we're living. So the results get better and better and better, but the standards fall. And, you know, I've taught young children and older children for, for 35 years. Yes, children want, young people want good results, but they want something more than good results. They want the truth. They'd rather know the truth. Where are they? And the fact is, they're a long way behind. There was a, there was a TV programme a few years ago where cameras went to South Korea. They gave the South Korean 15-year-olds a maths GCSE. They did it in 20 minutes, and they said, well, we did that in primary school. Yeah. That's how far yeah, behind we yeah, are. Yeah. About three years. An American billionaire friend of mine lives in Singapore now, and he <laughs> said he couldn't do his 16-year-old's homework. It was way beyond him. I get the point. But there is no point sitting here over a pint, railing about what's wrong with education, and we could have gone on for hours talking about the problems. What I'm interested in life always is how do you fix things? Yeah, of course. How do we begin a culture that turns this around, Chris? Incredibly difficult, but we've got to start with how do we teach the children? There was a, a Times report, commission report, a few days ago, 96 pages, asking the question, how can we fix our education? 96 pages, or I can tell you in two words, good teaching. And therefore, we need good teachers and we need people who are trained. So we've got to focus on the training of teachers. But it's an immense problem because the education establishment, the blob, consider it's all a big success. They're self-congratulating. They think they're doing really well. Do so you've got to get into the teacher training colleges. You've got to get into the Department for Education. Dominic Cummins, love him or loathe him, he said when he worked in the Department for Education, it was like going into a lunatic asylum. I've been in there many times. I've worked in many secretaries of state and prime ministers. And believe me, it's got progressively worse, not progressively better. And we've got to do something about it. We have to start with teacher training. But how, do you, how would you make North Korea into a capitalist society tomorrow? It's equivalent. Gosh, 
that is a bit depressing. So what you're really saying is we need leadership, political leadership. We need this. Well, we, we, we need these ideas presented to the public, the public to vote yeah. for them, political leadership. But then we really are turning around a tanker and it's going to take us many years to get back on the right track. It's going to be a long, hard slog, I and mean, we need to improve the calibre of our secretaries of state. I've worked with many. The good one, I think, the only good one I can say was, was Blunkett. He, I thought, was a good chap, and he ended up going to an, an NUT conference, a union conference, yeah. and they had to lock him in a broom cupboard for his own protection. That's what you're up against. So yeah. our current Secretary of State needs to wake up. And first of all, he needs to admit there's a problem. And there's a problem in government which says they don't do that. There is a problem. We are falling behind. Once you recognise the problem, you can do something about it. But it's the training of the teachers. But and, if, look, but if, and if they believe in the educational blob that they're doing a great job, then there yeah. is a huge cultural problem. 7% of our young men and women go to private schools. Yeah. Private school fees have gone up way above the rate of inflation for many, many years. It, it's a crippling cost. Uh, for anybody that's not, frankly, very, very well off indeed. How much bigger advantage do those kids have who go to that 7%? Well, I ended up as a, as a, as a head, head teacher in a private school, but taught much of my career in large comprehensive. Yeah. They get a, an advantage because they have good teaching and they have much more in terms of extracurricular activity. But don't fool yourself, Nigel. According to the OECD, the, the International Mum, uh, Number Crunchers, the children of the street cleaners in, Shing in Shanghai mm. are ahead, in general, of the brightest, of the best kids in our best schools, really? of the brightest kids, because really? they are taught well. So there's no excuse for saying because they go to a posh school, they're going to do better. No, because if the youngsters in, in places like Vietnam, Shanghai, Vietnam's a good example, do so well, then our kids can do so well. It's about how you teach the children and don't turn your back on what we did in the past, because we're the only generation, we're the only country in the developed world where grandparents outperform their grandchildren. So maybe in the 50s and 60s, they've got something right. Yeah. We've moved away from some good, tried and tested techniques. So we've got to get look back as well as looking forward. We need both. When you talk about this education in Korea, and, and I mentioned Singapore, yeah. you mentioned Vietnam, China, I guess to some extent this explains, doesn't it, why there is this transfer of wealth and power from west to east that is going on right across the world. Is there anybody out there in current UK politics that is talking this language? Anybody in a leadership position? We have Nadeem Zahawi, of course, in post at the moment, thought by some to be a potential successor to Boris Johnson. How's he doing? Well, he'll be controlled by his civil servants, as they always are. So I mean, what, we have a half-decent chairman of a common select committee, Halfen. He's, he's not bad, yes. but it's a very low bar. He's, he's jumping over there. Look, you, you have to persuade people at the top. Margaret Thatcher, who I work with quite closely at times, and number 10 in those days, a very different sort of place then, she was aware of the problem, but she had lots of things to do, fighting wars against Argentina, the miners' strike and everything else, so she never got round to dealing with the problem. But look, we do need leadership. Is Zahari going to be the man? Everybody else has failed. Will Zahari succeed? It's unlikely, but he, you know, he's got a challenge. And he's got to, first of all, wake up to the problem. Yeah. And he's got to talk to people like the Campaign for Real Education because they only listen to the people who created the problem. They talk to the people who created the problem, bring them back and say, now, can you solve the problem? No, the people who made the problem, caused the problem, aren't going to solve it My goodness it for you. me, you really believe in this, don't you? I do, absolutely do. And I've taught for many years, and you talk to the children I've taught, they will say, Chris McGovern, he's not a traditionalist, really. He just believes in high standards, and they like that. Chris McGovern, thank you for joining me on Talking Pints. Cheers.
Wow, well, that was real passion. That was somebody who really believes in what they're doing. I like to see that. I really do. It's time for Barrage the Farage. Let's go. Laura asks, how would you have handled the train strikes with regards to the unions? My own feeling, Laura, is they say it's not the role of government. It's not for us to intervene. Well, they just spent 16 billion quid of our money during the pandemic, effectively bailing out the railways. I'd love to have seen Boris Johnson call the bluff of Lynch, the union leader. Invite him into Downing Street. He'd probably, the union man would probably refuse. That would give the government actually some moral superiority. They haven't done it. Bob Crow, the late Bob Crow, who I may not have agreed with with everything, but rather liked as a person, told me once that in all the years he ran the RMT and Boris Johnson was mayor of London, they never had a single meeting. And I think in life, actually, you can show yourself to be the bigger man or woman by inviting somebody in, even if you have a disagreement with them. That is my feeling. Yvonne asks, do you agree that Boris is obviously a Remainer? Now, I don't agree Boris is a Remainer, but I do think most people in this cabinet use Brexit as a political opportunity, not as something they genuinely believed in. And that might have been good in December 19 for the election, but we're now seeing they're not fully delivering. Right, Alex asks, steak and kidney pie or leek and potato? Which one would you go for? I'll go steak and kidney pie. I'm going steak and kidney all the way, all day, every day, no question. John asks, what would you do next to counter the EU and opposition to Rwanda flights? Please, folks, don't believe a word that Dominic Raab said in the House of Commons today. None of it will come true. It's all political posturing. The Bill of Rights will not give a superiority over the ECHR in Strasbourg, which is not what it was set up to be by Churchill and others 75 years ago. If we leave the ECHR, we get back control of our borders. Now, I thought we voted for that six years ago tomorrow.